Okay. This isn't funny, but I've got a typo here um, in my notes, <laughs> uh, which says, um, after which she, Greg, really close to her dad. <laughs> ah, Greg. So my friend is pregnant and... Um, like our other friend has a one-year-old and we're talking about like whooping cough vaccines and like obviously like before you see someone who's just had a newborn baby, it's important to get your vaccines and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. My friend sent her, our other friend who's pregnant a message saying, yeah, it's so important. You don't want your baby to get dick. <laughs> <laughs> she meant sick, but it was my favourite thing I've ever read. Uh, just mum things. <laughs> just the mum things. So one of my first bosses, he, this was when I was working, I'm writing about mortgages, um, and he was emailing some important financial guy but at the same time he was texting his wife whose nickname was oh no <laughs> her nickname was pickle that's what he called her hey pickle um and he's messaging this guy <laughs> this email be like oh i'd love to talk to you about um residential mortgage-backed securities or something random this very boring email but he writes Hi, Pickle. <laughs> Has a whole like request for an interview. <laughs> Best signs off, sends the email, realises that he's just sent this email. <laughs> Directing it to Pickle. Oh, that's and so he never, cute. He never got a reply. No, that's never got fair. a response. Like, that was the end of that particular relationship. Welcome back to the Fierce Females of History podcast, stories of women that you should know about. I'm Erin. I'm Talissa. And I'm Lucy. And today I'm talking about... Who are you talking about? I actually have no idea. Yeah, neither do I. Who do you... Just actually, just like, who do you think I'm going to talk about? What what sort of vibe do you reckon I'm going to go down? Give us some clues. Give us some clues. Um... Can I say what I think first? I think it'll be someone from back, 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 back in the day. Lucy does have a history, pun intended, of having very, very ancient, amazing women. And the like epic violence stories. This one has a bit of violence. Not as not we're not we're not talking Olga level, okay. you know, like tours of destruction. Uh, okay, so it involves silver. It involves um, lots of running, lots of fighting, and it involves a bloody childbirth. Oh. oh, Jesus. Where are we? <laughs> we're in Bolivia, although at the time it's not known as Bolivia. We are, we're going back to the 1780s, um, which is when a little girl named Juana Azurdui is born. Now, she is born in a place called Chuquisaca, which is in Upper Peru at the time. So Bolivia doesn't exist, just like Bolivia is not, not a thing at this period okay. in time. Okay, so just a little bit of context. So the Spanish conquistadors, who we heard about um, yeah. in Saida, we know all about those guys, um, have taken control of the region back in the 16th century. Now, Spain kind of went there. They, they got Christopher Colon, Columbus. He went out there. And then Spain went on to build a huge empire in a big way because of all of the silver that they dug up from Bolivia's mines. And there's one mine in particular called the Potosi mine. Remember that. Now, these mines <laughs> were worked by um, the local indigenous people in kind of a weird perversion of a system that actually existed um, under Incan civilization. So under this this thing called the Mita, which was a form of mandatory public service that was also sort of a form of worship. So you sort of you did your you did your time building the roads, building all the things for the Incans, and you're also worshiping the gods. But then the Spaniards came. I mean, it's probably still a fairly brutal part of the culture. Like I'm not saying that it was this lovely thing probably still pretty rough but the spanish arrive and they sort of pervert the system then it becomes a huge 
burden on the local indigenous people and that's how they get them to um, work in the mines so it's it's slavery it's brutal they a lot of people die but they turn Potosi into the biggest city in the new world now that you're just going to store that little bit of information away and we're going to come back to it later yeah now Juana is born in Chuquisaca. At the time, this was part of the territory of the Spanish vice royalty of Rio de la Plata. Now, this is kind of equivalent to present-day Argentina, Bolivia, Paraguay, and Uruguay. So it's pretty, pretty huge, but it's it's controlled by the vice royalty. So it's kind of the Spanish have it, but and they're like, hey, you guys are just going to look after this. So it's Spanish, but it's kind of a little bit removed. Now, a little bit more context around the time that Juan is born. Everyone is getting a bit uh, pissed off. So there's sort of about this, about three different cultural groups. There's the Criollos, who are mainly Spanish. And then there were the Mestizos, who were partly Spanish, partly Indigenous. And the reason there were so many of them was because there weren't a lot of Spanish women who came to South America. And then there's the Indigenous people. And they're all feeling a little bit iffy because there's just they, the Spanish keep raising taxes and trade restrictions. Back to Juana. Juana is born Mestizo. So she's born to a white Spaniard and to a mother who is, who is um, at least half Indigenous. I know she just says half Indigenous. When we talk about Australian Indigenous people, we don't say like half, quarter, whatever. We just say they are Indigenous or Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander. Is that different with this story? Yeah. It's all about it's just it's all about the historical context. We obviously wouldn't say it today, but at the time, there was a lot of attention paid to to people's backgrounds and their racial makeup because it was a way of. I mean, and this hasn't changed, but it was a way of deciphering different classes and class structures and where people fit within society. So there was a lot of attention that was paid to it, which is why it's it. her background is notable for that reason. All right, so her mum died when she was seven, after which she grew really close to her dad, who is a guy called Don Matias Azardui, taught uh, Juana to become a sharpshooter and an awesome rider. So she's just like this little girl Ooh. who's just like riding around on her horse, shooting guns with amazing accuracy, which is pretty terrifying when you think about it. Like she's, how many little girls do you know who can, how many little boys do you know who can just ride a horse and, and be, be a sniper at the same time? People who can <laughs> Like it's a very specific set of skills. Yeah. And that's pretty notable for the strict gender roles of the time and place. And um, she also went with her dad to work the land alongside the indigenous labourers. And she was a polyglot. She could speak multiple languages. So she could speak. Oh, oh. is that the, what it's called? I want to be a polyglot. Me too. I could be a secret agent. You could be. Maybe I am. Maybe you are. Imagine if this is the cover. Oh, I've heard you speak French. I don't think that you are. <laughs> So she can speak Spanish, um, Quechua and Aymara, which were the languages of the local people. And she was known to just hang out um, in their villages for days at a time, just immersing herself in the culture. Uh, I think she kind of sounds like like a bit of a Disney princess movie, like one of the more modern ones. So like, yeah, she's she's a she's a fighter. She's progressive. She's cool. But her mum died and she's with a loving, loving father and friends with everyone. But then, as in Disney movies, the dad dies when she's Aww. a teenager, leaving her and her younger sister, Rosalia. So they're orphans. They're taken in by her aunt and uncle who looked after um, their dad's property until the girls came of age. But Juana's sharpshooting, horse riding activities begin to grate on her aunt, Doña Petrona. They begin to grate on her nerves, who finds her behaviour difficult to control, which is really surprising for a sharpshooting teenager. <laughs> <laughs> Who's lost her parents? Like- yeah, like she's working through some things. She's just got her guns. Like, Go to your room. <laughs> 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 like shooting. Yeah. 
Um, so they bring in a tutor. They're like, we're going to get this girl under control. We're going to just tone down some of the sharpshooting. Um, Which, I mean, I don't want to put women in a box, but I think that's pretty fair. <laughs> just keep it on the weekends, Monday to Friday. Yeah. So they bring in a tutor <laughs> who's there to make her into a nice young lady, but they also give up. They're like, oh, good luck, good luck, fam. She's, she's, I don't know, she's ahead of her time, that's for sure. So then Donya Petrona is like, get thee to a nunnery. They send her off to um, this, this nunnery. And surprisingly, that doesn't work either. So Juana just literally, she goes to this nunnery where they want to make her into this pious kind of reserved nun. And she just, she just goes there and she just spends all of her time thinking about fellow famous fighter, Joan of Arc, just talking to the other girls who are training to become nuns about how much she just wants to go to battle. So they're like, yes, Jesus. And she's like... But guns, guys, like <laughs> war, warfare, battles, glory, blood and guts. And they're just like, um, okay. So due to these bloodthirsty daydreams and her rebellious side, which just isn't going away, she's, she's just, she's clashing with her sisters. She's also kicked out of the convent by 17. See ya, ladies. So she returns to her father's estate or Hacienda as, as it was called and um, just hangs out. She's growing increasingly energised at the plight of the Indigenous people who lived on the land and becomes a huge ally in the Indigenous revolutionary movement. Yas queen. Yeah. Now, what's really funny is that all of this time she's she's being told not to be rebellious, don't be rebellious, don't be rebellious, but it literally becomes her job. So (laughs) enter stage left. Her childhood friend and neighbour, the dashing and charming, and I'm going to say super, super, super hot. His name is Manuel Asensio Padilla. He's a fellow revolutionary, a firebrand, and owner of a remarkable moustache. Good Tinder profile. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Manuel had left a royalist law school to join the movement. He's like, fuck you guys. I'm going to go fight for freedom. So she and Manuel, and they, you know, like, they grew up together, they're childhood friends, neighbours, but he's, he's gone away to law school. He's been like, no, nope, this isn't for me. We've got, we got to fight for the right to not be under Spanish rule. And he comes back and they get married in 1805. Oh, me Again, yeah. this could really be a movie. I know we say that. Yeah. <laughs> so they get married in, in 1805 when she's 25. And I don't know about you guys, but doing this podcast, whenever I read, and then she gets married, I'm like, ooh, is she a child bride? But she's not. Yay! Yeah. To me, 25 is a child bride. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> but that's my own complex. <laughs> it's much more age appropriate. And they have a pretty progressive marriage with Padilla, unsurprisingly, because he's, 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 he's just a beautiful man, standing by Juana on the battlefield and off, which takes us to her military career. And so in May 1809, about four years into their marriage, for anyone keeping track, she and Mr. Mo joined the Chukisaka Revolution, which goes on to oust the governor of the Real Audencia of Charcas. Now, Charcas is kind of Bolivia, and so they kind of they they oust the people who've been controlling Bolivia. They sort of they get rid of the guys who are in control of, Ch- of Bolivia, and then they establish a governing junta in Buenos Aires. They take over Buenos Aires by force. This is pretty much the beginning of the fight for independence, although there are historians who disagree and say it was more of a battle over which Spaniard would be their leader. Because what's important to understand, I guess, is that there's there's all these different groups who are all unhappy, but all for different reasons. So the indigenous people want to return to kind of their Incan civilization. The Mestizo are just pretty sick of everything, you know, they're kind of stuck in the middle. And then there's the Criollos, who were the purebloods who sort of want a bit more control from 
Spain and don't particularly like the current leader who is there. So they're all unhappy, but they're all sort of fighting for separate Issues. things. They don't really match up. So there's that's why there's different beliefs around the the reasons for this particular revolution and what it meant. But it's known in Bolivia as the first libertarian scream. First scream of freedom. Now it doesn't last long. So the royalist troops so regain. <laughs> <laughs> if anything, a yelp. <laughs> so the the royalist troops regain control in 1811, but not all of it. Just a, another bit of context. Over in Spain, they're busy dealing with something else. <laughs> like so, it's not it's not like they're just they can't dedicate all of their energy. They're a bit slammed at the moment because they've got this little guy named Napoleon who is trying to take over everything. Uh, that old chestnut. <laughs> <laughs> they're literally fighting a few battles on a few different fronts. Napoleon. Bonaparte was uh, one of the most successful generals of all time, fantastic campaigner slash dictator. He always took champagne with him whenever he went into battle. It's a vibe. Yeah. And he even, even when he was captured at the end, they, they gave him a daily ration of champagne. And so they're, they're pretty frazzled. They're a bit like, guys, can you just, I've just got a lot going on. Can we <laughs> put a pin in it? We'll circle back to it. Anyway, across, um, the vice royalty, so the South American region, rebels still control these things called uh, republiquetas, which are these little independent territories. Mm-hmm. Okay, and amidst the fighting, it, it seems like Azardui and and Steamy Padilla just keep taking turns rescuing each other. So at one point, Azardui is imprisoned in her home by Spanish soldiers. Padilla rescues her, kills the guards, and the two escape Chukisaka to get to a, rep- a republiqueta called Laguna, where they keep scheming and plotting. They escape to a republiqueta called La Laguna, where they just keep scheming and plotting. It reminds me of this joke that I saved the other day on my phone. Um, I don't know if you guys follow Kids Write Jokes. Talissa, I know that you don't find them funny. <laughs> or do you like cringing? But I find them hilarious. I'm going to pull it up. So here's the joke. What was the onion doing in the tree? Making a plan. <laughs> that one's better than the one you showed me yesterday. Oh, I love it. Just this, just this onion just scheming in a tree. And that's what they're doing. They've gone to La Laguna and they're just like, hmm, plotting. <laughs> um, so they, they've, they've been plotting. And they join up with the army of the north, which is a cool name, um, which is led by two guys, Jose, Jose Castelli and Antonio Balcarce. They were sent up with the army from Buenos Aires to fight the op- occupation in um, Upper Peru, Alto Peru. And now they join with these guys to try to block the Spanish army from invading where they are. But they're defeated. Uh, and this kind of galvanizes the army of the north to become more disciplined. As for Juana and uh, Manuel, their properties are confiscated and she and her sons are captured. Now, but our boy Padilla comes through with a moustache and he rescues them again. <sighs> Moustache first. <laughs> moustache first. That was me after quarantine because all you could see when you looked at me was moustache. <laughs> the next year in 1812, Padilla and Azurdui fight under the new general of the Army of the North and they take up, they, they really tap into their charismatic side. So they're, um, they're obviously sharpshooting horse riders, but they really they really hone into this and help him recruit some um, 10,000 militiamen <gasps> across these independent territories. So they're really freaking charismatic. Yeah. We want you and you and all of you. And they get they get all of them. She's she's known for her recruiting power. She's just like she's just 
bit of a almost a bit of a cult of personality. They're just like, yes, we, we will follow you where you go. So she inspires Indigenous people, servants, and even women known as the Amazonas to join her forces and join the fucking party. So in Greek mythology, the Amazons were a tribe of women who were very good at war. Just a little little aside. Now, eventually, their territories in the mountains are taken over by those darned Spaniards. Um, but as a Dewey and Padilla's militia serve as the rear guard while the rest of the army retreats and heads into independent Argentina. So they're like, they're like, stay back while the other guys run. You weren't wrong about lots of walking and running and traveling on foot. I tried to map it out. Do you know what I tried? I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to map their, their progress. No, impossible. So this is when Azardui gets her own team and they're known as the Loyal Battalions. These guys are a force of Indigenous men and women who are known for their loyalty to their commander. And this is where it gets pretty cool. So these guys, they're literally fighting with slingshots and wooden spears. They they fight in this uh, against the Spanish in this Battle of Ioma, which is known as the Dead Man's Head in Quechua in late 1813. And as in apparently... Most of their military engagements, it doesn't end well. The um, the forces lose in a pretty major way. But the general, another guy called Manuel, Manuel Belgrano, is really impressed by Juana and her little um, slingshot team. And he he's just he's just so amazed by this David versus Goliath battle that he literally gives Juana his sword. Oh. He's like, just take it, just. You've earned it. I don't need this. You'll you'll use it better than I will. But this is still a series of defeats. Remember, there's not a lot of wins so far. Once again, Juana's army of the north is, they're just, they're the little guys, you know, they're outgunned. They just, they don't have the skills. And they're beaten back to the border where Azardui and Padilla begin to take up guerrilla warfare. And you know what they, I mean, like, the thing is that from this stage of the story, the only thing that I'm thinking is don't bring a slingshot to a gunfight. Yeah. Nah. No, not going to end well. Over this period, Azardui is still very much into her swords, her warfare, slingshots. She's all about it. And she's also busy making babies. Oh, jeez, Louise. Talk about busy working mum. <laughs> There's just a lot of bloodlust, you know. Um, so much so that during another battle, she literally just, like, literally mid-battle, she leaves the battlefield incredibly heavily pregnant she's she leaves she's like save some action for me guys i'll be back um just be a minute she has a baby on the war front oh my god yeah oh my god she literally has a baby she pushes a human being out of her the fact that she was there fully pregnant i know that's the part that i'm like at some point wouldn't you be like maybe frontline isn't the best place for a heavily pregnant woman not juana she's like it's going to be fine. There's two of us. <laughs> Double the power. But I've got I've got my slingshot. Fighting for two. <laughs> and then, so she has a baby and then she just she just returns to the battlefront and it's like, hey guys, what did I miss? That is impressive. Yeah. No, that's bonkers. I know, some people actually think it's not real. I just don't know. I watch a lot of One Born every minute and I'm not going to lie to you guys, it looks like a lot of work. It's a lot of work. But apparently she does this. We can leave that as it, as it is and goes on to personally capture the royalists standard or flag which is a really big deal she gets them she gets the flag Woo! which is it's like capturing the the queen in a game of chess it's very sim- it's a symbolic thing now let's go to 1816 because time flies me having fun ladies and having babies on battlefields she's leading 30 cavalry which includes her amazons to take on the um spanish forces and again they capture the standard and a huge cache of ammunitions which is pretty good haul considering they're using slingshots um a few days later they take over potosi 
which remember I told you about Silver City. Before. Yeah. It's a main source of Spanish silver. She leads the charge, captures the standard again. She's just like, I just need all the flags. I'm going to capture all the flags. Ha ha ha. Suck on that Spain. Did you write that? No, I didn't. Oh. <laughs> I don't believe you. Show us that you didn't you write it. <laughs> I didn't write it. It was just my delivery was terrible. It was, was ha ha ha. Suck on that Spain. <laughs> Pause for laughter. I am a robot. <laughs> now, the thing about Potosi, as I said, is that it's a place of extreme cruelty. So it's just, yeah, it's nasty. But she, in her daring raid, deprived Spain of their precious silver. Oh, imagine them caring more about silver than people. Oh, wait, that happens now. <laughs> I'm crazy. <laughs> yeah. Now, another general, Juan Martín de Pueyrredón of the Argentine army, hears about this and makes her lieutenant colonel. And apparently she, which made her one of the first uh, women to be awarded a military rank. Amazing. Yeah. But things go a bit south from here. So she's in another battle in September and she's pregnant again and she gets injured and Manuel is shot. No. No. And and he's captured by the Spaniards while trying to get to Juana. (laughs) No, don't do this Oh, this is the, like, the big dramatic climax. But it's not scenes. a movie, so it might not bounce back. I'm really worried. He's, he's captured. She's pregnant. He can't get to her. <laughs> I'm going to cry. It's horrible. Then <sighs> he's beheaded. <gasps> and the apparently his head is mounted on a pike in the village. Oh. So Juana, she's lost her Manuel. That's actually the saddest thing ever. <laughs> I really, really was rooting for that. So she's heartbroken. She's alone. She's pregnant. She's surrounded by the bloody Spaniards. She is between a rock and like a million angry men. Padilla's dead. The northern guerrilla forces begin to dissolve and she's left a bit on her own. But she survives though and leads a counterattack to get the body of her husband back. 1818, the royalists again take control of Chukisaka and she has to flee again to northern Argentina. And at this point, I've written, she's just, she's going everywhere. She's, she's she just, she's all over the place. But she keeps fighting under another general and is appointed commander of the northern army of the revolutionary government of the United Provinces of the Rio de la Plata. Whoa, big title. And in this role, she manages to carve out an independent territory on the border between Argentina and Upper Peru. Until finally, the Spanish forces are like, hmm, she's really not giving up, is she? So they split. And um, at the highest point of her control, Juana led an army of around 6,000 people. So in 1824, the Spanish forces leave Upper Peru and Azardui now asks the independent governor to help her get back to Chukisaka, which is now named Sucre. Bolivian independence is proclaimed on the 6th of August in 1825, and she's granted a, a colonel's military pension under Simon Bolivar. And Bolivar actually goes to visit her and says, this country should not be named Bolivia in my honour, but Padilla or Azardui, because it was them who made it free. But um, I mean, you never really turned those words into action. No, did he? <laughs> It was like, nah, just joking. Like, just imagine naming a country after a woman. Like, pfft, like get it out. <laughs> Psych, nearly got to deny her. Lull. So it's still called Bolivia. But, you know, it's the thought that counts, right? No. Sure. <laughs> she never actually gets her property back after the Spanish took it. So it's just sort of absorbed into the new Bolivian territory, which I don't know about you guys, but I'd be pretty pissed off. Yeah. About that, like she has fought a bajillion battles. She had a baby on the front line. Maybe she captured a dozen flags. She has she 
got a lot of flags. She lost her husband and she traipsed across a fair chunk of South America. And South America is so freaking hilly. Like it's not exactly oh easy God, yeah. terrain. It's not like you're just walking across lots of fields. You're like going up and down mountains the whole time. And jungle. Yep. Mm-hmm. And the new government that you just helped install is like, wow, did you do that? Wow, that's so cute. I love that for you. Sorry, you're not getting your home back. We need it. Have a nice life. Juana, is it? Wow. Yeah. Then to add insult to injury, her there's a new government, there's a change in government, and her pension is revoked under the new structure. What the fuck is wrong with these people? <laughs> I don't know. So um, she adopts a, a little Indigenous kid who looks after her, but she still dies um, on the 25th of May in 1862, impoverished, and she's buried in a communal grave. How old was she when she died? She was born in 1780 and she died in 1862, so she was 82. That's pretty impressive. So she died unknown, but then 100 years later, she's actually remembered as a hero, which is... A bit late. But um, her remains are exhumed and moved to a mausoleum built in her honour in Sucre. President Evo Morales, who is this, he is a champion for um, Indigenous rights and pro-farmer and all of that, names her birthday, the 12th of July, as the official day of Argentine-Bolivian Fellowship. And she has an airport named after her and, and a province in Bolivia. Ooh. Then, in 2009, she's raised to the rank of general of the Argentine army. Cool. Oh. And um, apparently she's also the first woman to reach that rank and even in her death her legacy is still grinding people's gears so you know she's she's pissed off her aunt she's pissed off her tutor she's pissed off the nuns and she's pissed off spain and now in 2015 she's still grinding people's um grinding people's gears which i love for her so in july 2015 morales gifts a 52 foot high statue of azardui to argentina that's like five stories that's huge 52 feet. It's taller than 10 me's. That's a lot of yous. One of you's enough. <laughs> <laughs> it's 52 feet. It's huge. That's it's huge. it's massive. And it's a really cool statue. She's like, she's kind of kneeling and she's like looking forward and she's got her sword and just like, fuck everyone. And they have this, this statue and that represents the history of the country's indigenous people and to sort of encourage future advocacy. And it's put in the place where a statue of Christopher Columbus had been. Burn! But removing the statue of Columbus causes a stir and people people get angry. Oh my god. Hates people did. They think that it's like rewriting history and it's like, I mean, it's not. Why should people have to literally look at their oppressor every single day when they will pass? It, you know, put it in a museum somewhere. Yeah. We don't need to see it every day. Having a statue where people see it every day is to honour someone, right? Yeah. You don't need to see it every day. Within a year, actually within a few months, her statue started to show weather damage, which... I think it's just, I'm like, I just don't believe that. And the, and the new leader is appointed and he has the statue moved to a less central spot and repaired. And it's still there now. Petition to move it, anyone? <laughs> Argentinian singer Mercedes Sosa has a song about uh, Juana that translated into English reads, um, Juana Azurdui, flower of Upper Peru, there's no other captain braver than you. I hear your voice beyond Jujuy, which was a, a place up there, and your courageous gallop, Doña Juana Azurdui. It makes me fall in love with the fatherland. Unveiled, I travel its territory. The Spaniards shall not pass. With women, they will have to fight. And that is the story of Juana and Manuel. Well, thanks for that wild, romantic, heartbreaking, sharpshooting, bloody, oh, stressful. Like, it had everything. Story, Lucy. Yeah. 
<laughs> I'm I'm actually still sad about Manuel. Like I yeah, read that and I was yeah. like, oh, Manuel. Yeah, it was too good to be true when you said it at the start, to be honest. Yeah. Well, as always, you can find us on social media, uh, Instagram at Fierce Females Podcast or Facebook, Fierce Females of History. You can email us. It's fiercefemalesofhistory at gmail.com or you've got a second while you're listening right now. Scroll down. Rate us out of five and leave us a little comment on there as well. It helps yeah. more people find and hear about these stories. Yes. And check us on your Instagram. Take a screenshot. Yeah. yeah. Tag us. We love that. Stalk us. Or <laughs> you can spend uh, around US $1 million erecting a 52-foot high statue of us and put it in a public place and then let us get a bit of weather damage and then move us to a less public place. <laughs> you said erecting. <laughs> <laughs>